0: Welcome to Deckert's Liborcast, where industry leaders come to talk Libor transition. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Deckert Liborcast. This is the 17th in our series. I'm Matt Hayes, your host. I'm a partner in the Global Finance Group here at Decker. I lead the Asset Finance and Securitization Team and chair our LIBOR Task Force. Uh, today, I'm joined by our guest, Mike Johnson from Wells Fargo. He's been integrally involved in Wells Fargo's LIBOR transition efforts. He's focused on supporting litigation-related issues for the bank, including some of the issues related to Wells Fargo's role as trustee. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks. great nice to be here. Well, certainly appreciate having you. Uh, These are some very weighty issues, I think, on the industry, and and hopefully you'll help demystify it a little bit. From your perspective, what concerns you most, including from the trustee business side and and Wells as a bank, about uh, the LIBOR transition and and what might come here?
1: Well, the trustees uh, in the industry are parties to a lot of the so-called tough legacy contracts. These are the contracts that have LIBOR reference rates in them, and they typically have poor or no fallback provisions in them. Uh, this is of concern to Wells Fargo and to other trustees because, you know, the role of the trustee is typically to you know, perform duties in accordance with the terms of these agreements. And they are really not in the business of trying to sort of fill in gaps or construe ambiguities. And the tough legacy contracts are also the ones where there's not a really good mechanism in place in these agreements to fix LIBOR-related deficiencies. Um, These are not instances in which there are good amendment paths, for example, uh, because typically it's necessary to reach out into the investor community and get unanimous support for any changes to the relevant provisions. And as a practical matter, that's that's all but impossible. So these types of agreements are fairly prominent in the context of RMBS securitization transactions, and you know, there's going to be a lot of work to do between now and the LIBOR sunset. Coordinating among different parties to make sure that the steps are taken by the relevant parties to ensure that at all the points in the transaction where there might be a provision um, dependent on LIBOR, some sort of replacement uh, and action plan is you know ready to go by that sunset date.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I mean, do you get the sense that investors, uh, you know, owners of the securities in these transactions are sufficiently engaged in this process and understand all of those risks and, and the need to have a plan?
1: Well, you know, my my focus has really been on you know making sure that that Wells Fargo and in, in the role that it has in the trustee space is prepared for the, the LIBOR phase out. It's a little harder for me to speak to, you know, where the investor community might be. I I do have the sense, certainly, that some of the bigger players, you know, for example, in the RMBS space, are very focused on this issue and and they are engaged. Um, You know, I might shift the question a little bit to, you know, what are the things that investors could be doing to ensure that we have an orderly and smooth transition And, you know, I think a few things come to mind there. Um, You know, I think first and foremost, it's really important for investors to take advantage of opportunities that they might have to participate in the arc, which I know you know, Matt, and I think a lot of your listeners know, is, you know, the Fed-chartered organization that has been trying to address a lot of the LIBOR phase-out issues. Also, there are opportunities, I think, for investors to participate through established industry groups like Cifma and and the SFA, the Structured Finance Association, um, and those are good forums in which you know investors can learn about these issues, understand what trustees and other players are doing, and also you know voice their views on issues. I think something else that is going to be important is for investors to support SOFR to the extent possible. Uh, Wells Fargo and a lot of our competitors have already started to offer new deals that feature SOFR instead of, of LIBOR. Uh, and you know, we really need to see the uptake on the new deals. We need to see enthusiasm around that. Uh and you know, the more that people come to accept and appreciate the features of, of SOFR, I think the easier it will be for some of the legacy transactions to make that smooth transition um, we're all looking for. You know, and one other thing that I would like to see the investor community think about doing is supporting the federal legislative effort that's underway right now and as I Think you know a lot of your listeners already know you know that is legislation that right now is um, being discussed uh, at certain levels in Congress that would facilitate the transition away from LIBOR and you know it would help ensure that there's you know I guess a consensus if you will around how we will move away from LIBOR and it will also ensure too that there are not surprises. And, you know, it minimizes the risk for the industry as a whole.
0: We talked a little bit about the investor side. What do you think on the the issuer side? Is the issuer community maybe more engaged in the process and and working with the trustees to uh, address these issues and try to get ahead of them? What's your sense there?
1: Yeah, I think, Matt, it depends a lot on the type of deal uh, and, you know, the terms of the specific transaction documents, the trust agreement or you know, indenture, whatever it might be. There are certainly a population of transactions that have LIBOR dependencies where the issuers have an important role to play. You know, I'm thinking, for example, of the role of the issuer in a traditional corporate debt deal uh, that might have a LIBOR uh, floater in it. And I think it's, it's fairly common in those deals for the issuer to have responsibility for addressing, you know, what will happen when LIBOR sunsets. I am aware that Wells Fargo, in its role as trustee on some of those deals, is already engaged with many of those issuers. And I think that is, you know, a constructive dialogue. And, you know, particularly now that, uh, it appears that for many of the relevant U.S. dollar LIBOR tenors, the sunset date is being pushed out. You know, there's a good opportunity for issuers to work collaboratively with trustees to ensure that in advance of that sunset date, there's a replacement in place. I think you know it is important for, for issuers to be undertaking that review of their documents, to understand um, what their role might be. While Wells Fargo is certainly doing a lot of that diligence itself, it, it really is up to the other participants in these transactions, including issuers, to educate themselves on what their role is, and they'll be proactive in taking steps to make sure that there are no surprises when when live or sunsets.
0: Well, what's your sense? I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, ambiguities in the drafting issues in documents. Um, do you get the sense that there's a general awareness of, of these issues? Or, I mean, do you have any concerns that the view that it may work itself out or that maybe something else will happen along the way, like a legislative solution that, that may mean that you know the a plan to handle those ambiguities isn't as necessary. I mean I guess what do you say to someone that that may have that view and how should they be thinking of, of planning around it?
1: Well I think it is important for market participants not to assume that you know folks in Congress Um, or any other legislative body are going to take care of the the problem for them. You know, at, at Wells, we're really viewing the legislative solutions as almost the remedy of last resort. We feel it's incumbent on us and, you know, our counterparties and our customers to understand what's going on with LIBOR and, you know, understand what the options are. And, and plan, uh, and, and, you know, be proactive in that regard. For us, and I think really for the industry, uh, we need to see the legislative solution as a remedy that exists really to address those, those tough legacy agreements, uh, which are only a small percentage of the overall population of LIBOR deals. And, you know, those tough legacy agreements are Th- those in which there are not adequate fallback revisions to guide the parties as to what to do when line War sunsets. And they don't present any practical opportunity to amend. And there, you know, we certainly do see a role for legislation. We, you know, I, I can't say that we're relying on it, but it's fair to say that we are certainly watching it very carefully. And we're prepared to give that process, you know, at least some time. But, you know, there will come a point at which even for the tough legacy agreements, we and, you know, the other parties to those transactions and the investors um, might need on their own to address the situation.
0: So maybe talking through the scenario of if we we don't get a solution that the parties can agree to, we don't get a legislative solution that can address the problem from the trustee perspective when you are responsible for making a decision, uh, what do you do?
1: Yeah, well that's a that's a great question, Matt. Wells Fargo and other banks that serve in trustee and trustee like roles take on a fairly limited Set of responsibilities when they sign on to these deals. You know, as, as you and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, uh, the indentures and pooling and servicing agreements for these types of transactions tend to be very lengthy, very dense, and very detailed. And that's in part because it's important to the parties to these transactions, including the trustee, to have clarity as to what their roles are and the trustee is really going to be performing only those duties that are set out for it in the relevant agreement. And you know they they don't have responsibility for performing duties that aren't spelled out uh, with precision. And when trustees find themselves in a situation where there is a gap or an ambiguity as to a process uh, or a function, they oftentimes have to resort to a, a litigation tool, a litigation solution so that they can get the clarity that's missing from the document. Um, we tend to, to call those types of proceedings generically trust instruction proceedings. And they're a fairly uh, esoteric procedural device. Uh, they're not something that you typically learn about, for example, in a law school civil procedure class, you know, they sort of, still a very narrow niche, Um, you know, they were designed originally to give guidance to trustees uh, for personal trusts, for state planning trusts, Um, and they were designed to create a forum where a trustee who had a question as to the administration of a trust could go to get guidance and also protection. Uh, because, you know, if the trustee followed the guidance of the court as to that that question about the administration of the trust, the trustee was, you know, exonerated from a liability and the beneficiary of the trust couldn't come back and say, oh, you know, you should have pursued a different course than the one that the court advised that you take. Those proceedings have evolved over time and they've become an important tool uh, for trustees' In the corporate trust space, including specifically trustees on, on complex securitization deals. So, you know, in the context of LIBOR, one option that certainly Wells Fargo would consider, among other options, in the event that we are faced with one of these tough legacy agreements and there's not a legislative solution that adequately addresses the situation, is one of these trust instruction
0: proceedings. So, it's a, it's a great topic. I guess um, the first question I had around the proceeding is, is the timeline to getting it done. What's your sense of how timely a trust instruction proceeding can be resolved? Is it something that uh, owners of interest in securitization vehicles, for example, should rely on? And maybe you have any you have confidence in, in that process as a, as a tool to get results?
1: You know, the timing issue is certainly one that we have been thinking about. It's unfortunately all too true that the litigation process tends to move rather slowly. It can appear that way to to folks, you know, in in this world where decisions tend to be made quickly and, you know, there's rapid evolution of the products that are offered and the different types of securities um, and their features, litigation, including trust instruction proceedings, can seem to move at a glacial pace. We have found that courts are uh, responsive though to deadlines that are out of the control of the parties. And you know I'm thinking here of course about the the, the deadline in the form of the sunset dates for the various LIBOR tenors. I am optimistic that if it becomes necessary to seek some judicial guidance in the form of a trust instruction proceeding, we'll be able to get that process underway and provide the court with enough information about the timing constraints, you know, everyone is is acting under such that, you know, we can get this across the finish line um, before LIBOR sunset. That does though mean that to the extent that we're, watching developments in the legislative front and and you know we at Wells very much are, it's important to get some clarity as to you know what type of legislative relief will be in place sooner rather than later. That way we have enough runway in advance of the LIBOR sunset dates to consider whether some sort of judicial clarification is needed, and you'll get that process moving.
0: Is your sense that these proceedings can be combined, you know, multiple trusts that may have the same issue or consistent issues in a, in a manner that's, you know, somewhat scalable? Or are these proceedings likely to be, you know, single cases and, and maybe some of the more ambiguous provisions?
1: You know, I think from my perspective, uh, I, ideally the proceedings... You know, we would you know, try to minimize the number of proceedings that have to be commenced and at the same time maximize the scope of the relief that we get. In other words, I, I do hope that to the extent that it, it might be necessary to commence a judicial proceeding, that the proceeding will cover many issues uh, across multiple deals. It is, I think, a little bit of a balancing act, though, um, because if you basically load up a single court with a lot of very difficult, complicated questions, um, you probably are going to draw out the timeline for that proceeding a little bit. So, you know, these are going to be pretty difficult decisions that that we have to make if, if, you know, if we get to the point where we say, yeah, it's time to ask for some clarification from a court,
0: and some of this may be the the timing of when we have actual guidance, you know things like term SOFR, when is that available? Do we have a legislative solution in terms of timing this? I mean, what's your sense on when we might see some activity around this and and sort of relatedly, are these uh going to be sort of publicly announced? are we going to have you know judicial opinions like we would see in in normal litigation or You know these more closed cases, if any sense of those issues.
1: One of the features or benefits of trust instruction proceedings is, you know, not only are they public court proceedings where you know typically uh, you know anyone is entitled to you know literally come down to the courthouse and and sit in and watch what's going on, but also. Anyone with a stake in the transaction, and that term stake is generally pretty broadly defined, can actually intervene and participate in the action if they think that's appropriate. So what that means then is that everyone who wants to have a voice should have a seat at the table. That is, I think, you know, one of the features here is it's not that, you know, uh uh, you know, the, the court is not the oracle of Delphi and, you know, a question being asked and then it just spits out an answer a couple of months later. Um, instead, you know, the issues are teed up by the party that's commencing the litigation. And then, you know, there's a period in which basically, you know, the interested stakeholders convene. You know, they they, they intervene, they appear, and, you know, most courts will allow them an opportunity to brief issues there might even be discovery, you know, that is, you know, documents may be circulated, there might be experts, but, you know, it's a pretty thorough and fulsome process. And, you know, it's really designed to make sure the court takes account of all possible arguments, all possible viewpoints, you know, hopefully to, you know, end up in a place where you have the best possible decision of the circumstances. Uh, You know, the idea being that, you know, hearing from, from different people, different perspectives, will ensure a more thorough vetting of the issues and yield a better outcome. Um, You know, in in terms of the the timing question, Matt, uh, I think it's really too early to say, we we need to see where the legislative relief comes out. And, you know, I'm not directly involved in monitoring uh, the effort to get to a, a federal statute. Uh, but, you know, I, I do understand there's ongoing activity right now. It's possible that there could be real progress made this year. Um, you know, I think that timing is, is great. Um, and, I, again, I think that because the folks are, you know, wanting to be proactive here, one thing they can do is certainly support efforts to get legislation through and hopefully signed this year, if at all possible. Um, you know, I think that come... Q4 of this year, we're going to need to kind of just assess where things are, uh, and I think we'll just have to, you know, see what the status is at that point, and then start to, you know, make some concrete plans as to, you know, how we're going to get across the you know, the, the 2023 finish line.
0: So for the, you know, sort of initiating a trust instruction proceeding and, and how to decide to do it, I mean, did the... You know, any of the parties to the transaction have anything to contribute to the process in the sense that you know, if an issuer identifies a a place of ambiguity and there's no functional way to uh, amend, you know, a widely held transaction, for example, um, you know, is it something the issuer can come to the trustee and say, you know, is this something where we could uh, attempt a trust instruction proceeding, or do you get the sense that it's something that trustees will have to independently decide? as to well whether to seek that type of action?
1: Well, one of the, the features of trust instruction proceedings in at least some states is that while they're called trust instruction proceedings, it doesn't have to be the trustee that initiates. This can vary from state to state and statute to statute, but you know, in, in some states I think it would be possible for that that issuer itself to uh, you know, raise its hand and, and go directly to the court. If that is not the case for a relevant jurisdiction, I think that it would certainly be appropriate for the issuer that has spotted this, you know, this LIBOR related problem uh, to approach, you know, the trustee or the bond administrator, um, you know, maybe the, you know, the party that is going to be most directly impacted. Uh, by that ambiguity and, and have a conversation about what to do about that. Uh, but again, I, I think that if the issuer is in the position of, you know, having to make its own decision as to, you know, a specific ambiguity, uh, because of the role that it plays after issuance of the securities, it might have the opportunity itself to secure the type of judicial guidance that, that might be needed to, you know, to address the issue.
0: Great. Sounds like we have quite a lot to uh, work through here in the next uh, few months as, as the LIBOR transition moves forward. Do you have any sense, maybe prognostic in here as to how this will be resolved and play out? I mean, I think we probably all hope that we don't need to have the trust instruction proceeding. But do you think it's avoidable in, in the tough legacy cases or do you think it's it's just a matter of at what point the relief is sought when all of the pieces are essentially you know, fall in the line?
1: I have to say, I'm a bit of an optimist here. If you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would have been a bit of a pessimist, but even knowing that things, you know, can get kind of bogged down in Washington, I'm hopeful that we're going to get a good federal statute in place, you know, in the next, you know, six to nine months. And, you know, if that happens, that will be a great thing uh, for the, you know, the investor community generally. I can't predict that it will eliminate the need for, you know, a trustee to secure some kind of judicial guidance in in a particular case. But it's probably fair to assume that a good statute is going to reduce significantly the the scale and scope and, and duration of these trust instruction proceedings. You know, for example, there might just be a set of RMBS securitization transactions that all were issued by the same entity, uh, that have some, you know, particularly problematic but unique language around LIBOR. And that might be an instance where the federal statute just doesn't adequately address what's going on in that set of deals. And so the trustee for those deals, you know, hopefully in a single proceeding can go in uh, and relatively efficiently and quickly get the clarity that's needed, again, so that, you know, they know what to do uh, come day one of the post-LIBOR world.
0: Okay, well, I, I will uh, hope for your optimism. It seems that uh, we're at least getting some clarity as far as the timeline goes. And, you know, hopefully we'll, go, we'll get some legislation here that makes these issues a little bit less concerning. Definitely thank you for your uh, time and we really appreciate you joining us today.
1: Thanks. I appreciate you having me.
0: And thank you to all our listeners. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please check out our LIBOR cast channel to hear our other insightful discussions with market and industry leaders including regulators, trade associations and market participants about the work ahead on the LIBOR transition process. Thanks for listening and have a great day.